This is week number 21 in our study of the book of Daniel. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is uh, very familiar. If you've grown up in church, this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And so this uh, chapter starts off with uh, Daniel describing how the government was set up in the land of uh, the province of Babylon after the Medo-Persians had come in and taken the kingdom from the Babylonians. And so the time setting here is like five, it's after 539 B.C. It's uh, 65, 70 years at least after Daniel first had gone into uh, the land of the Chaldeans when he was captured in Jerusalem and marched to that land. And so Daniel's not a young man. We've talked about this, that he's uh, probably at least 80 years old, um, that he's not like the storybook pictures that you saw if you were a child and grew up uh, in church. Then they always had Daniel as a young man and the angels petting the lions. And, you know, it's, it's not that at all. This is a, a, an elderly man, uh, going into a truly threatening environment. And you remember that <clears throat> Daniel was one of the three commissioners that were set up to run the government underneath King Darius. And underneath those three commissioners, there were 120 satraps. So each of those commissioners probably had something like 40 satraps working underneath them. And that was the structure of the government. The satraps were to take care of the local government, then they were responsible to one of these three commissioners, and the three commissioners were responsible to King Darius, and all of that was to keep his kingdom in order. So Daniel was one of those three commissioners and was excelling beyond the others because of the uh, extraordinary spirit that was within him is the way that he writes about it. And so Daniel... Uh, was pleasing the king, and the king was going to promote him to be over the whole kingdom. So the other commissioners and satraps would be pushed down a level as Daniel was put over them uh, underneath King Darius. And so the others, we looked at this, were jealous or didn't want Daniel to be over them or didn't want to lose any of their authority. And so they began to devise a scheme against Daniel. And the first thing they tried to do was examine his government his governing methods, his whole uh, system to try and find a fault so that they could blame him for errors that had been made or something. And because Daniel was such an excellent governor, they could find absolutely nothing wrong with his government, found no flaws, no deficiencies, anything. They even had to admit that in the scriptures that we're not going to be able to, to pin this guy on anything because of the excellence of his governing. And so they decided to devise a scheme against him using his religious peculiarities. Daniel, being um, devoted to the one true God, was different than they were. They would all have many gods. And so because of that devotion, they were going to try to devise a scheme against him. And they were successful in that, and that they went to King Darius and got him to produce an injunction that for 30 days no one could petition any god or any man other than King Darius himself. Don't know exactly why he signed that, but he did sign it. And so that became the law for the next 30 days. And there's this rule, apparently, in the Medo-Persian environment that once a king sets an injunction, not even the king can change the injunction. It cannot be changed. And so that comes up in the story as we read it today. These uh, people who were opposed to Daniel went and caught Daniel in his prayers um, to the one true God. And so there they had Daniel, it says, using uh, prayers and supplications um, before his God. And that would have been against the injunction. And that's kind of where we left off last week, that they've got him now at a point where he is going against the injunction that King Darius had put forth. So that gets us all the way down through verse 11. Today we'll pick up there and take the story all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, this is narrative. This moves pretty fast. 
Uh, you probably already know the story fairly well. And so uh, we'll begin this morning reading in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 11, and then I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Daniel 6 verse 11, there the scripture reads, These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days, is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, This statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exercising himself, exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn and at the break of the day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who who had accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has, delivered, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So there you have the whole story. Um, of Daniel in the lion's den. So we'll walk through it a little bit here and see if we can pull out some of the important things as we go through this. Now, we saw it last week that these guys come and find Daniel uh, praying. He, you know, Daniel had the habit, apparently, of praying three times a day uh, facing Jerusalem. And so he continues to do that even though he knows that the king has made this injunction. Now, you'll notice that these guys do not grab Daniel and drag him before the king, right? They simply go and make accusation uh, about what Daniel is doing. 
Now, no one doubts that the accusation is true. Why would that be? Okay, because this was Daniel's habit, right? There was no one... Apparently, Daniel's faith in the one true God was very public, and everybody knew about it. So no one would doubt... You'll notice the king's reaction as soon as they mention that Daniel is still praying to his God. He doesn't question whether that's true or not. He does what? What's the king's reaction when he hears that? (laughs) He's distressed. Now, why is the king distressed? Because someone's violating his injunction. Right. This This is the guy, right? This is the guy that he's going to promote to be over his whole kingdom. So this is going to injure not only Daniel, but this is also going to be very injurious to the king and to his kingdom. Okay, now, I think it's more about Daniel than it is about the kingdom at this point. So apparently, there's this relationship between Darius and Daniel similar to what he had with Nebuchadnezzar. Because he is so trustworthy, because his governing is so pristine, because there is never an error, because his advice is better than everybody else's, um, you know that he excels even above the other commissioners. So, and you got to believe that those two commissioners are two of the main instigators of what's going on here, okay? Because they had the most to lose if Daniel gets promoted because they no longer then have access to the king, they have access just to Daniel. So they have the most to lose, so I've got to believe that those two guys are involved. And we'll see that as we, as we go through this. So the king, you'll notice that before they tell the king about Daniel, they do what? They, they go to the king and they say, Oh king, didn't you make this injunction? So why, are they, why do they do it that way? Why don't they just go and accuse Daniel? It is. It's just like Nathan did to David. He calls attention to this is the breaking of the law. Right. What do you, you know, you know you, you're, you're aware of what the law says, making so that they can't go back and make an excuse or go back and... Yeah, and matter of fact, you'll notice that the king volunteers an added phrase after they say, didn't you make this injunction? What's he say to them? I mean, it's the king who says this. It can't be changed. By the law, the Medes and the Persians, once a king makes an injunction, it cannot be changed. It's the king who says that, not the other people. So afterwards, when they then accuse Daniel, the king has no option to say, well, we're not going to obey that or we're not going to do that or I'm going to put you in prison or he, he, has, he has no... Why can't he change his mind? He'd be contradictory to his own word and the king can't do that, right? I mean, you would think a king can do whatever he wants to. Apparently not. Because remember, he is not the ultimate king. There's a king over him, which would be Cyrus. <coughs> Who could they could go then appeal to Cyrus, and Cyrus would exercise the law of the Medes and the Persians. Go ahead, Bob. That's, that's, that's what I was going to point out. Right. He wasn't over the entire land that must have been No. Because he still was under the law and the kings of Medes and Persia. Yeah, we talked about that, right? When we when we looked at who is this guy, I believe that he's uh, separate from. Their, uh, from Cyrus, and that he's a secondary king that Cyrus appointed over the province of Babylon. And so he's ruling not the whole kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, but a section of it. And that's his responsibility. Matter of fact, I think he'll say that later on when, when he begins to make proclamations. Go ahead, Anna. Because that's what he says. Well, yeah, we talked about this a little bit, that it would probably be okay for a king to put himself above the gods for a period of time, but not forever. I mean, if he would have put himself over the gods forever, then those who worshipped Baal, 
Marduk would have been very opposed to the king because they thought that Marduk was over everybody, including the king. And so for a time period, maybe they would put up with it, but not forever. So they just say for 30 days. So for those 30 days, nobody was to make a petition, even to Marduk, just to uh, the king is the only person you could do that with. So they are very clever. They do get the king to make all the statements that they will then turn back on him uh, whenever he tries to free Daniel. And you notice he does try to free Daniel. It says that he worked until sunset trying to free Daniel. Now, what, what could he possibly have been doing during that time? Uh, looking for a loophole, getting advice from other people, um, trying to manipulate the situation. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, anything he could think of, he was trying to do because he was, he's distressed. He does not want to put Daniel in the lion's den. And we talked about this because that would mean what? Yeah, sure death. It's capital punishment. That's how you kill somebody instead of you know injecting them or putting them in an electric chair. You put them in the lion's den and let the lions eat him. So, um, yeah, there, there would be no escape. And so the king is distressed. He's made the statement that he can't change his own rules. And so the guys finally come back to him, these instigators. At the end of the day... Down in verse, um, yeah, 15. Then these men came by agreement. You notice this is a conspiracy. We talked about this last week. There's not just one or two guys. There's a whole group of them who are conspiring against Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is in all the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So they're saying the time's up. You, there's no way out of this. And so Dar- Darius knows there's no way out. He's trapped. And you're right, he's probably furious. Um, not just with them, but with himself for having been trapped. You know, he should have known better. He knows that what Daniel's practice is. Uh, it wouldn't have been a secret to him. No one here questions whether this is true or not, or maybe he wasn't really praying, or you don't see any of that because they all know Daniel. And so he is praying. And so in verse 16, the king gave orders and and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. Now, who's there when they put him in the lion's den? The king is there, and who else? It's these guys who are opposed to him, right? The accusers. They're all there. And you notice what Darius says to Daniel. Right? He says, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Now, there's a couple of things there, right? Constantly serve. What does that mean? I mean, Daniel's been serving the king, right? His government is better than anybody else's to such an extent that the king is going to promote him. So he's been serving the king. So what does the king mean when he says you constantly serve your God? He's 80-something and he has stories from the time he was a teenager. Of always being faithful to his God, right? Even in his government, he was still faithful to his God, which is why his government was so good, because he was always faithful to the God of Israel. Go ahead. And when he had to choose between obeying Darius or God... Yeah, and if you notice, I mean, I think it's back in like verse 10, there's no doubt that Daniel knew about this injunction because it says when Daniel knew of the injunction, then he went to pray, like you said. He's not going to change what his pattern is of worshiping his God just because a king makes an injunction. So the king recognizes that and says you constantly serve your God. Okay, and then there's this, when, when he says, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Is there a question mark at the end of that, you think? 
Or is this a confident statement that I know your God's going to... Or is he asking Daniel, is your God going to deliver you from this? What do you think? Is this a statement of confidence? It's a hopeful statement. How do you know he's not absolutely confident? Yeah, when he comes back the next day, he questions. Was he able to... Well, that's for, for sure. Yeah, so he, he doesn't have this. This is not a statement of great confidence. You notice that De- uh, Daniel does not reply. At least we don't have it written that he replied. But so, even know if God will. no, he has no idea. Just, I mean, he doesn't know if he's going to be preserved. Go ahead. Right, right. Trouble. Well, he was hoping for it, right? And he's asking Daniel. I think it, I think it's more of a question than a statement of your God is going to protect you. I think it's certainly your God will protect you, won't he? It's that kind of statement. And Daniel doesn't say anything back because Daniel doesn't know. Daniel doesn't know if he's going to get crushed so by the lions and then eaten, or if he's going to be protected. He doesn't know. Not at this point, he doesn't. Go ahead. Yeah. Which is probably why Daniel doesn't answer him, because his God doesn't have to protect him. This could be the end. I mean, the man is uh, eighty years old or older, so I mean, this could be the way that God takes him out. And so he doesn't know that he doesn't have you know this great confidence. I do believe he trusts in God. There's no doubt about that, that Daniel would. But that doesn't mean God's going to save him or get him out of this predicament. So, bad things do happen to good people, right? So, this is more of a question. And the, the king, like you said, I mean, they bring a stone, they put it over the, I guess this is a, like an entrance into the lion's den, don't know exactly. It's not like at the zoo where you got a fence and all of that. But so this lion's den, and then they take their signet rings. The king puts his in there uh, in some type of seal, uh, maybe a wax across the the where the stones met. And then they also take this the signet ring of the uh, nobles and use it also. Why both signet rings? Well, then the king couldn't come get him out, right? Because the noble... I mean, if the king came and got him out and it was only the king's signet ring, then he could just redo it and nobody would know the better. But when you got both of them, then neither one can do it because they would break the others and then you don't have their ring. So there's no way that they're going to get Daniel out of this um, at least that night. And so he's sealed into it. It's probably dark by now. Um, because you know he, he, he waited until sunset until they came back to the king. So Daniel goes into this dark lion's den. And like you said, the, the king had a bad night, right? I mean, first of all, he didn't eat anything. So is that fasting like to a god or something? Or Yeah, I think he's just so nervous he can't eat, right? He can't eat. He doesn't want any entertainment, so don't bring the king's entertainment for the night. And then he also can't sleep. Go ahead. Okay, I'm, I'm, this is my devious mind here. Devious. Mm-hmm. Devious. He labored, the king Darius labored till the sun went down. Right. Well, we speculated that might be consulting with others, but if I were a crafty king, I would have gone off and gotten some cow or sheep Slaughtered it, thrown it into the den, fed the lions. Fed the lions? Could be. Could be. Could be. I mean, still didn't know that lions would go after Daniel, but at least they would be not very hungry lions. Yeah, could have done that. Right. But, you know, he's a smart king, right? 
right? He is. He's shrewd. All the people, all the characters here are shrewd. I think the scripture speaks directly to that. And we'll see it in a little bit. We'll see it in a little bit, right? Speaks directly to that thought. So we go on. And um, so the king has a bad night. I mean, it's, it's not good. And so he gets up at dawn and he runs to the tomb or to the, to the cave where the, where the lions are. It could be. Wait. Yeah, so they can't. Lower area. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely down. As, right, right. Later, you see they hadn't gotten to the bottom. Yeah, lift him out. Right. So it is definitely lower. Um, so the king rose at dawn, goes in haste. So here's the king in his robes and all running toward the lion's den, right? And he, he cries out when he gets there. And notice his question. He cried out with a troubled voice. ESV says what? Um, yeah, voice of anguish. So what is anguish? Give me a synonym for anguish. Despair. Sorrow even. Would be, yeah, grief would be in there. So it's more than just troubled, right? He, he doesn't think he lived through the night. He thinks he probably will not respond to him. And, and what's the question that he asks? Well, right, so he questions, but this statement, and you're right, this is the first time that we've seen Darius say anything about a living God. So what's, you, what's different about that? What difference would that make if he said living God? Well, they've never said anything to him, right? And he hadn't seen him work like he's seen this God work, apparently. This, this word living is used other places. And I want to show you, it, it means exactly what we would use it for today. Notice back in uh, chapter 2, when Daniel is responding, when he, when he has the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's responding uh, to Nebuchadnezzar saying, you know, tell me what the dream means, then um, down in verse 30, he uses the same word. He says, um, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. So it means exactly what we would use it for. So it's not some obscure, it means something that is alive. Okay? And this is the same word, by the way, that Nebuchadnezzar used of this God after his right mind returned to him. Not before, but after. Go ahead. Oh, wouldn't that also suggest that he was distinguishing something between something that's animate and inanimate? Yeah, I think so. That, that the king recognized that what they worshipped was man-made. Right. Man form, carved like metal or wood or something, where Daniel worshipped something that was inanimate. Yeah, I think he is distinguishing. Look over in 434 where after Nebuchadnezzar's right mind is returned to him, remember he makes this great proclamation, right? And we wondered if that was the words of a saved man or not. But in, in 34, he says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Same word that we're looking at now. The living God, the one who lives forever. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he... Yeah, this is... He is making a distinction here, I think, between... You know, you're in a very polytheistic um, society and he's pointing one out. Go ahead. You know, in the, in the East, a lot of times we worship ancestors. Yeah, yeah. You never hear from them. 
and who knows if these gods that they came up with may have been, rep, you know, somehow represented them as ancient ancestors or whatever. But you never hear from them. But in the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar saw right. God walking among them, even said so. Right. Right. So they saw him animate, moving there with them. And I'm sure this was related down to Darius. Sure, sure. Um, well, know, the proclamation was made to the whole world, right? And, and then in the, in the dreams, you know, people had heard from this living God, and, and Daniel was the mouthpiece of this living God. So this is not a God like the, the others, these stone things that represent something that no one, no one ever hears from. This is someone who actively intervenes Yeah, and I'm sure that he also knew about the hand that had written the inscription that Daniel interpreted, a hand out of nothing, clearly from God. And so you're right. I I think he is making a distinction. And he'll use this later. uh, I think it's down in verse 26, where he says, for he is the living God. And so Darius sees something unique in this God of Daniel. And he addresses him that way when he comes after the night of no sleep. And he says, Daniel, has your living God been able to keep you from the lions? So he's not so confident, right? He questions, has God been able? Go ahead. It sounds to me, too, that this is more of a hopeful kind of a comment, too. It seems to bring up kind of two things in my mind. Is the living God, whom you serve constantly, that you tell me about this living God? Mm-hmm. I imagine Daniel telling him about his living God. And then it's almost like with Nebuchadnezzar, like he said in verse 26, it's a confirmation. He now is addressing it because he's seen it himself, too. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that he's saying there is this living God. It sounds more like he's saying, kind of recounting to Daniel, has the living God that you've told me about. Right. Right. And, and he's always called the God of Daniel, by the way. In, in all of these passages, you notice that it's always the God of Daniel. Now, think about that for a minute. Every, everybody refers to him that way in this passage, the God of Daniel. Well, is he the God of Daniel? I mean, he's really the God of the Israelites, right? So what does that tell you about all the other people? They're not so worshiping that one true God, right? Because it's the God of Daniel, not the God of the exiles or the God of the, Jew, or the people from Judah or the God of the Israelites or any of that. It's the God of Daniel, the one unique guy who stands out as worshiping this one true God. He's the only one that they know of who's actually worshiping this Right. There are others. But they don't know. Right. There are others. There, there's a remnant of people who are in this land, who definitely worship the one true God. Um, among them, Zerubbabel, who goes back, right? Nehemiah is here, who goes back. So there are other true worshipers. We just don't know about them at this point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is God, again, being able to communicate to the whole world through unbelievers. Go ahead. Is, well, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that, uh, that uh, word had gotten to Darius about uh, Daniel's uh, history from, uh, from the Babylonians. Sure. Isn't this the first time that Darius has seen it for himself? Yeah, we don't know exactly when this is. Um, it's, it's at least long enough where Daniel has proven himself to be better than the other guys. So there's got to be some period of time. We also don't know how long from the injunction to when they accused Daniel. We know it's less than 30 days, but we don't know how long. Was it a week, two weeks, three weeks? Maybe they waited to the very end and then they remind the king of what he said. You don't know. Um, Maybe one of the reasons why they say, King, what did you say about your injunction? And and they rehearse it. Because nobody else has violated it, apparently. Just Daniel. But is this the first time that... That Darius? Yeah. yeah, other than when Darius first got there, 
right? It was the handwriting on the wall, and there's Daniel standing in his purple robe and gold necklace. So other than that, yeah. Yeah, but I think he probably knew about that story, about the handwriting on the wall. But yeah, for the first time in his rule, as, as far as we know. So the, the king comes in, he calls out the Daniel, he asks these questions, um, making some distinctions here. And um, this, has your God been able to deliver you? What's that sound like? What does that remind you of in the book of Daniel that we've come across? Daniel's prayer. Right. Right. That's one of the places. There's another place where this should remind you of something. Shadrach, Meshach, what does it remind you of? Right. But what did Nebuchadnezzar say before that? Even Nebuchadnezzar himself said, Who is there who can deliver you from my hands? Remember? And so you have both the believers and the unbelievers here talking about this God, is he able? And so that's the question on, on, still on the mind of Darius. Is he able to save you from the, from the lions? In the, in the thread of God revealing himself to all mankind, this whole idea of his ability goes back to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah laughed, mm-hmm. the Lord, who we believe possibly was Jesus himself at the time, whoever it was, right. said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Right. And then Moses praying when he was trying to rule the people, again, the Lord in his prayer spoke back to him and said, nothing is too difficult for me. Right. And Jeremiah, who Daniel could have studied under early as a child, certainly both in Jerusalem before the exile. Certainly heard him. Right. 32.17, he says, Ah, behold, Lord God, you have created the heaven and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too difficult for you. Yeah. Yeah, so that, and that's what the true believers believe. The unbelievers always questioning, is he able? Can he really do this stuff? Is he really sovereign and in control? But Daniel, now, i, I got to believe that that night, you know, he just says, well, the angel came. I think that angel came probably in response to a prayer by Daniel. I don't think he just sat around say, waiting to see if he's going to get killed or eaten. Probably not. He's probably crying out to the Lord to, to help him, to deliver him. You know, uh, I mean, he prays three times a day anyway. It's probably time to pray. So, so, verse 21, king asks this question, and Daniel responds, O king, live forever. Right? Not, hey, I'm here, I'm okay. O king, live forever. Why would he say such a thing? Well, that's why you address a king, right? Absolutely. So still being respectful to the king... And let him know, I mean, this is Daniel speaking, O king, live forever. And this is his trusted you know, um, comrade. This is the guy that he's going to put the whole kingdom in his hands. And so the king is pretty happy about this, right? Pretty happy. Now, the king all night long could not sleep, right? Very frustrated. What else do you think was probably going through the king's mind? Yeah, what is he going to do to the guys who who put Daniel into this circumstance? I mean, he's been tricked. He's got to be infuriated, right? So he's probably also scheming about how he's going to get those guys. And this works out perfectly for him. So, he's got evidence. He's got their signature. Yeah, they sealed him in there, right? If he could, yeah, yeah. I mean, or to any guide. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this, he, he really is. I mean, this shows the relationship that he has with Daniel. I mean, the king, to put anybody else in there, he wouldn't have lost any sleep. 
He still would have taken his entertainment. He would have eaten his great meal. But this is, um, this is personal. There's a relationship between Daniel and this king that is higher than we think it is. So this is within the 30-day yeah. period of his edict that everyone was supposed to only ask of Darius. Right. No could ask anything of anybody, right. any god or man, but Darius. Right. So he's basically saying by that, I can fulfill all needs. Right. And now he sees his utter inability to do anything. Yeah. To save Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I do think, we talked about this a little bit, he, he signs that injunction um, is showing his pride and his vainness, saying, yeah, I can, like you say, fulfill all your needs. You don't need to ask anybody anything. If you're going to ask anything, just ask me. And so uh, I do think they appealed to his arrogance. But he, I mean, he is a king, right? I mean, he does have, uh, his word is law, except for when he can't break his own word. So, by law, the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so Daniel um, tells him what has happened. Now, can you, I mean, so here you got the sealed, I mean, the sealed lion's den. Daniel's on the inside. The king's on the outside, and they have this conversation. Seems kind of ridiculous to me, but nevertheless, that's the way it happens. So, I mean, Daniel's still in there with the lions. And so he says, uh, Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch I was found innocent before him and also toward you. So Daniel declares his own innocence. Now, an angel from the Lord, shut the lion's mouth. Now, the, all the artists show what? Well, there are the, the angels standing there holding the mouth shut or, you know, crazy things. How do you think, it would, first of all, do you think this is a literal angel who came into the lion's den? Why not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or theophany. <laughs> or theophany, yeah. Theophany means what? Absolutely. God actually being there. So, But he says an angel. So I think, you think Daniel saw this angel? He said it was dark, but angels aren't dark, right? Angels glow. <laughs> you'll see it. You'll see it. No halo. They just glow. <laughs> You'll see that later when the when Gabriel comes, right? Black light. <laughs> I, I don't know Greek or whatever, but it's, I don't either. But is this the same word that is used to describe the fourth man in the fire? This angel? You know, I didn't go check. I didn't go check. I'm sorry, say again. I did not check, and this would be not Greek but Aramaic here. <laughs> That is what? That it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Oh, it could be. It could be. But we don't even know that in the furnace was the pre-incarnate Christ. We, I mean, it's not, a bad, it's not a bad guess, but we don't know it for sure. But I do think Daniel saw this angel. Now, how did the angel close the lion's mouths, recognizing there's not just one lion here? Yeah. Yeah, we we'll see that, right? With Gabriel and the war that goes on for him to get to Daniel and the other the demons trying to stop him and I was detained because I had to beat up some demons and you know all of that. We'll get there. So, yeah, I think a, an angel would be fearsome. I think Yeah, yeah. Well, we do have those also, right? Before the throne of God, we also have those. So there, there are different types of angels. This is one of the battlers. 
right? So this angel, it wasn't Daniel who was afraid in the lion's den. It was the lions who were afraid in the lion's den of the angel. So he didn't have to hold their mouth shut. He didn't have to do it. He just had to, to speak to them, and they would cower from him. I mean, he represents the one who created them. So he doesn't have to wrestle with the lions or do any of that. He just speaks to them, and they cower into the corner. And so all night long, it wasn't Daniel who was afraid. It was the lions. Go ahead. God himself. Yeah. We'll rescue you. Yeah. Well, and, you know, let's not read too much into that, okay? He did. Well, also, it was was a plea. Sure. So now he's breaking the law because he's making (laughs) 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 it. Maybe he was praying to himself. No, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) So. I mean, this angel, I think, is real, is literal, was there, and the, and, the, and the lions didn't dare come near Daniel because probably between them and Daniel was this angel who was commanding them to just chill out. In his proclamation that we're going to get to, he says, all men should fear and tremble before God. Right. And he also says, because he has performed signs and wonders. So mm-hmm. both, whether it's furnace or here, it's the God who created controlling what he created. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's what's going on here. And these are real lions. They are hungry. <laughs> As we'll see in a minute, right? Okay, so the angel comes in and controls the lions. And then the king was very pleased. So in verse 23, the lions are sad, but the king is happy. Okay? Then the king was very pleased and gave orders to Daniel to be taken up out of the den, as you said. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What does that sound like? No injury was found on him because he trusted his God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Coming out of the fiery furnace such that there was no singeing and they didn't even smell like smoke. It's that same kind of thing. Absolutely no harm whatsoever because they'd been protected by the Almighty Sovereign God. And that's what's happened to Daniel here. The parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 6 are explicit, right? This is Daniel showing the same kind of faith and trust in God as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had showed. And as we said, when he went into the den, he didn't know if he was going to die or not. Had no idea. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know if they were going to go into the furnace and be burned up, or if God somehow would miraculously protect them. But they trusted him, and so did Daniel. And so God responded, you know, somewhat because they trusted him, but also because he wanted to do this. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah, either way he'd be delivered. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that should be our mindset, right? I mean, that's what the book of Daniel speaks to us today. That should be our mindset, is to trust God, and whether we leave or we stay, we're still delivered from the ultimate penalty. And that's, that was where Daniel was at. Okay, so um, Daniel declared his innocence. I have a question for you. Was Daniel really innocent before the king? He says, I've done nothing against my God who found me innocent, and I've also not done anything against you. True or not? Yeah, yeah. So why does he say this? I've committed no crime, he says. Yeah, I think what he means is there. you have authority, but there's an authority above you that I have to obey, and so your law means nothing. 
And so I obeyed the higher authority. The one who, by the way, gave you authority. That would have been Daniel's communication to, to uh, King Darius. Is that you're only the king because God put you there. Yeah, yeah, and this is, this is the place where it is appropriate and is pleasing to God, right? You'll have to make your own decisions about whether, if it's not against God's law, you can have civil disobedience or not. I think to a certain extent he's also saying to Darius, you know, this was a phony law. Yeah, came up with. yeah, okay, it's I kind of a ridiculous one. one. I didn't have to obey this one. Right, yeah, I think he is pointing out the... <laughs> Well, 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 notice as you go on through this story, um, the king's pleased, Daniel is trusted and saved. Then the king, in verse 24, gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. Now, what did they do against the law? What did they do that was against the law? They did trick the king. They really sinned against God, against Daniel, and against the king. Wives and children. Remember, you remember what Nebuchadnezzar always said, right? I'll do what to you? Tear you limb from limb and make your house a rubbish heap, meaning I'll kill your kids and your wife also. I'll just do away with all of you. That's true. Well, this is, my point is this. This is the king. He is the law. He can kill you. Remember, he can kill you if he wants to, or he can preserve you. It's up to him. And in this case, he's furious. He's furious against these guys. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, there there have been multiple places in Scripture where God, in justice, wiped out all the rebels. And that's what's going on here. This is before God and before the king. This is just. These guys deserve this. And notice that the lions are hungry. Right? Why is that a significant point? They didn't. There was nothing wrong with them. You know, they weren't sick. or Right. It, I mean, I think that's why these details are included. Well, even if they had, by this time they're hungry. So, I mean, I think that's why it's in here. Before they get to the bottom of the den, the lions pounce on them and crush their bones. Okay? So the, these, are, these lions are not, you know, the angels no longer there restraining them. So they would have done the same thing to Daniel given the opportunity. They just weren't given the opportunity because the angel was there. So there, And I think that's why it's here. It confirms the miracle that God worked on behalf of Daniel, that these lions act like lions when they're given the opportunity to. So it, it just confirms that God did rescue Daniel. Go ahead. He's, he's growling at the lions. He's growling at the lions. He's keeping them back. No? Just Daniel. Just Daniel. As soon as they lifted Daniel out, the, the angel could go, right? So. Go ahead. Yeah, you don't... You don't you know, and this is why I made the point earlier. I think at least the two commissioners were thrown in and their whole families and probably a significant number of satraps who were also joined with them. So, you know, now the king does not have to promote Daniel. <laughs> right? No more commissioners. Just Daniel. He's the guy. And those satraps who were opposed to him? Don't have to worry about them either, right? They're all in the lion's mouths. 
So no promotion needed. He's the number two in command. And so this is um, the God restoring Daniel to where he was with Nebuchadnezzar. Go ahead. There's also, I mean, I'm kind of seeing a sense of loyalty that the king has towards Daniel. Oh, yeah. Daniel's always remained loyal. It's looking back in Esther and when Mordecai was to be killed, the king was angry that those that had betrayed him and that they were hung. Right. You know, and so it's kind of a similarity there. It is. I think that, you know, back in those you know, in those days kings would look at people who did not have loyalty, the distrust was inst- you know, done. Right. And so there was a sense of they those two administrators were disloyal in trying to use his law in tricking him and the king really saw that. Right. Right, right. And, and, you know, I mean, Daniel, throughout the whole book, to these unbelieving kings, was the most loyal there was. I mean, his, his ruling was excellent, not for his own sake, but for the king's sake. Pristine. They couldn't find, I mean, think about it. All your enemies come and they sift through your, every detail of your government and they find nothing. There was nothing to accuse him of. So let's go ahead and finish the chapter. So this um, this salvation of Daniel and the taking justice onto the ones who are opposed to Daniel inspires Darius in verse 25 to write to all the peoples, nations, men of every language who are living in all the land. Now, I think this is not to the whole world as Nebuchadnezzar had been. This is to his kingdom, because he'll say that here in a minute. Now, his first words, right? Same as Nebuchadnezzar. May your peace abound. And it's just a blessing to all the people in his kingdom. May your peace abound. And you know, this, you would think, and I'm pretty sure, in Babylon at this time, it was a peaceful time. I mean, the kingdom was run well. You have a, a solid, established king. S- Cyrus is a good ruler. He's in con- absolute control. The people are not rebelling against this at all. This is a good government. This is good living. And so he says, peace abound to all of you. This is the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar said to the whole world. Peace abound to you. And then he goes on, and he says, I make a decree in all the dominion of my kingdom, not the whole world, but my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. God of Daniel. You know, they, do, they don't know who this God is. They just know that Daniel worships him. You know, they, that's always the characteristic in, in, these, in these setting. But then he, he goes further. For he is the living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. What's the overriding theme in those statements? I mean, he says it four times, basically. It's eternal, right? This, this Darius the king understands that the kingdom of the God who Daniel worships is everlasting. It's forever it will never be destroyed. That's what he says. He says it three times, repeating himself. So he recognizes at least that this is going to go on forever. This is also Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the same thing when he makes his declaration. And then he goes on and he says, he delivers and rescues, and as you said, David, performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And the sign and wonder, he then states it, is that he delivered Daniel from the lion's den. So, same question we had with Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus, a true believer, or just speaking right words? Well, one thing that we know, whether he's a believer or unbeliever, God used an unbelieving kingdom to speak his word to everybody to communicate to everybody. We see that over and over and over again in Daniel, that God is able to do that. Even with these guys who are opposed to him, don't necessarily believe in him, 
Cyrus is different from Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry, Darius is different from Nebuchadnezzar in what way? I think I think Darius is different than Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have to be humbled by God before he makes these statements. Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled by the hand of God before he would make these kind of statements. Darius, not so much. Darius goes there immediately. Go ahead. Sure. Right. 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 As being the sovereign one, right. as enduring forever. Right. And we don't know. You know, it seems a little ridiculous to me that he would say these things and not then begin to trust this God who had delivered Daniel, but we don't know. It seems ridiculous to me today that people would see miracles in their own lives, people preserved or God working in some way, and then not believe. That's what the Israelites did. Sure. Saw more miracles than anybody, right? And didn't believe. So... um, and, and, and mainly, that just goes to our theme here, right? That God's the one who's sovereign over his kingdom, over his universe, over his peoples. And the only way to, to be a true believer is by the sovereign choice of, the, of God himself. That you don't just decide you're going to be a believer. So it goes even to that theme. But God is shown as sovereign, appointing whoever he wants to, ruling over his kingdom, controlling everything that happens. And, you know, this is not a distant God, right? I mean, he's intervening all the way down to the king of Babylon, working in and amongst him, saving Daniel. So this is not a God who wound up the universe and turned it loose. He's intervening in the affairs of men. That's the whole theme of Daniel, right? The whole book speaks to how God is directing the kingdoms that were first seen in the image that Nebuchadnezzar built and now they're being worked out. And that'll be where we go in the next chapter. The next chapters are very, very different. A very different tenor starting in chapter 7 than what we've had up to this point. This has mainly been Daniel recounting his personal history. Not so much going forward. Matter of fact, we'll even flash back several years. And then Daniel speak of dreams and visions that he had. So that's where we go in, in 7, 8, and 9. So it would be very different going forward. Go ahead. As the uh, personal history is kind of coming to a close, I, I wonder how a model, of, a model in the Old Testament like Daniel could have been so obedient without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you wonder about that. You know, in the the Holy Spirit and people work differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament, right? You recognize that in the in the in the New Testament, all true believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you can see it clearly in the Kings. Um, and in Samuel, the Holy Spirit came over individuals and not every individual and didn't always stay permanently, worked for a time and then would leave. And so he, clearly there is inspiration by God, inspiration of the Spirit, but it's different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. That's the, the wonder of the age of grace that we live in is that the Spirit indwells all true believers. Not so much in the Old Testament. There were a lot of people who truly believed in the Old Testament that we never see in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit came over them. But they were true believers. Whether, you know, we know this, that Daniel was inspired to write what he wrote in the 600s, right? We know that, but we don't know if during periods of his life whether the Holy Spirit was over him or not. 
He never says that. He describes himself as having some kind of a special spirit. Special spirit, right. Extraordinary spirit. And, but that word spirit you know, can go both ways. It can mean the Holy Spirit, or it can mean your spirit. Um, it can mean your soul. I mean, it's, it's not so unique that you could say, oh, this is different than that. You can't. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm one. A lot of people disagree with me. In the New Testament, I think spirit and soul are synonymous. Same thing. Now, there'd be people who say, no, you've got to parse that. I, I don't. I take them as, I think they're used interchangeably. A lot of people disagree with that, but that's the way I read it. Yeah, spirit, the spirit of a man and the soul of a man, I think, are the same thing. But I could be wrong. Right. 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 Yeah, and you notice that both Saul and David anointed by the prophet for the Spirit to come over them. So, there is a unique and there's difference in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It's not the way we think about it today. Final statement, question? Chapter 6, Daniel, behind us. Thanks for your time.